You're listening to the Beauty Plus Justice podcast, where we talk with folks from a variety of fields about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. These conversations are led by Dr. Tamara James Todd, a trailblazer at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health and head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab. And I'm your host, Lisa Johnson, a PhD candidate at Harvard Chan. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Beauty Plus Justice. In the last episode, we started our two-part dive into the role of businesses in beauty justice, specifically how strategic partnerships with companies within the beauty industry supply chain can have a ripple effect in cleaning up the entire industry, especially for products marketed to women of color. In this episode, we're actually gonna get to talk with a clean beauty brand that's making waves in the industry. So Honest has an extensive banned and restricted substances list, and we call it our no list. And it really outlines the ingredients that we have chosen not to use given a high inherent hazard. That was Heather McKinney, the head of toxicology and product safety at The Honest Company, a beauty brand with a mission to inspire everyone to love living consciously while making clean, sustainable, well-designed products that work. While we're not endorsing any company or product with our interviews, we do want to highlight examples of companies that are working towards developing safer products for all consumers. In this conversation, Dr. Tamir James Todd and Heather talk about the Honest Company's model for product formulation, how beauty companies can handle uncertainty regarding the effects of chemicals, and what it will take to have a clean chemical standard for all beauty manufacturers. And now here's Tamir to get the conversation started. Heather, it is wonderful to have you join us today. Could you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah. Hi, Dr. James Todd. Um, My name is Heather McKenney. I am the Associate Director of Toxicology and Product Safety at The Honest Company. Thank you for this exciting chance to chat today about making safer products. I know that you and I share so many of the same core values on this subject, so I'm really excited to be here today. I'm so really excited to have you here. And I'm also, you know, I think we have some overlaps maybe in our journey of like how we came to uh, doing work in this space of looking at safer products and really trying to improve the world around us uh, through focusing in on this. You know, tell us a bit about your story. How did you kind of, you know, become interested in this? And how did you end up finding out, learning about and landing um, at the Honest Company. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Massachusetts myself in a, in a town called Marblehead. So for those who don't know anything about Marblehead, it is an incredibly wealthy town on the North Shore. But I actually grew up in state-assisted housing in the town, and, and I lost my dad at a very young age to preventative heart disease. Um, and I think growing up exposed to both great affluence and need, as well as seeing the burden of exposure and disease on, on these Um, the lower SES community, although I didn't know it at the time, really started to shape my core values um, that I bring into my work every day. So right after undergrad, I attended the Boston University School of Public Health, where I opted for the MPH program. So throughout my time at VU, I was always retrofitting my projects to focus on personal care product safety, um, even when the, the project kind of lent itself more to maybe like an environmental media project. I was always finding a way to do it. Um, and, and also through all of that, I, I landed some really great opportunities for research. So when I graduated, one of my common searches um, 
in those post-grad months was um, honest.com slash careers, because I'd had my eye on the honest company as a, a company that was really doing the work um, to, to make that product change to towards safer products. And one day research toxicologist was posted and the job posting truly read like it was written for me. And I applied and I think I had the job offer within five days and I packed up my car to drive from Boston to LA. I'd never been to California. Um, and I've been with the company for five years now. That is really, I mean, it's really amazing, particularly when you like put together the different pieces of your interest and it converging with kind of the, you know, um, kind of life experience. You and I share a lot, um, not only BU, um, <laughs> School of Public Health, amazing, amazing, um, um, you know, opportunities there, um, but also just how the impact I too lost my father at a, 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 an early age. And I think for me, and, it, and I don't know, maybe it sounds like for you too, like it kind of put a lens towards thinking about health kind of early on and the importance of, you know, what are the things that we can do to improve and make the world a healthier place? For me, I dedicate a lot of my work and my science um, um, to him. Um, so no, thank you for sharing that. Um, out of curiosity and kind of related question is, can you tell us a bit more about the changes you've seen kind of across um, attitudes and beliefs around awareness of product safety, particularly for, you know, um, children and infants, you know, have you, have you seen this in the last, you know, five, 10 years? Like, do you feel like consumers are becoming more aware? Um, and if so, how? Yeah, I, I think that most people have noticed shifting opinions throughout their lifetime on product safety, because as consumers ourselves, we respond and often emotionally to the research and news about product safety. So, you know, unfortunately, researchers are typically unable to secure funds to study chemicals or products until, you know, we're widely exposed um, as a community. So every time a new research article pops out about XYZ chemical being a, I don't know, potential carcinogen, odds are we've used that product ourselves and it might even be in our house. So I think we've all kind of felt the tides changing as we have access to more data. Um, as somebody born in the early 90s, in my childhood, um, I watched adults essentially navigate emerging news related to safer food products more than cosmetics. So I watched my community move from strict brand loyalty to one to two parents not letting their kids have cupcakes for birthdays because of food dyes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big one. That poor, the poor kid in the class, he was like, sorry, my mom says I can't have one. Um, but also, you know, their mom might've been right. So um, I think about that a lot, you know, BPA in BB bottles, um, and then, you know, growth hormones and dairy, and then the move for all products to be natural, vegan, organic, GMO. Um, but, but I do think the average consumer is becoming more aware in the cosmetic space as well. Um, because like I said, we have constant access to data, information, and opinion now. So I think that for many, the root cause of this at-home research and concern can be attributed at least in part to an acquired lack of trust that the authoritative bodies and consumer product industries are working to protect them. I, I remember when I was a kid, these light up water yo-yos on like a jelly string were all the rage. I had a very 
very different mindset then because I remember the the rumor going around in school being that they were toxic, right? The water inside the yo-yos were toxic to kids. And little Heather, her response was, they couldn't sell them to kids if it was toxic. And I just think about that all the time of like how far the pendulum has swung in my own journey, right? Of learning about consumer product safety. I just want to just highlight that statement because I don't, I think there's so many people that still are there that little Heather said, you know, they wouldn't sell it to kids if it wasn't toxic, you know, if it was toxic, you know, and that's, that's powerful. I resonated with that. (laughs) But you had asked specifically about baby products and, you know, we have these pivotal life events that trigger consumers to reevaluate their buying habits, you know, pregnancy and the birth of a child being two of the strongest. Well, I think this change in purchasing behavior has been true for, for decades or perhaps longer. The topics of conversation are changing daily, and they should based on the data available and, and the facts surrounding the conversation. So right now, a year ago, the conversations that, that people may have been having with themselves and, and their, their doctors and their communities might have been about, hey, how do I feel about disinfecting my home with bleach if I have a child at home? And that was because we had so many uncertainties with COVID. We didn't know how how it was transmitted, does it live on surfaces? And that was a really important conversation to be having, even for an individual who might not normally choose to to be disinfecting with bleach. But now that conversation isn't as pertinent. So that same consumer might've kind of changed and started researching safer or, or the difference between natural and synthetic ingredients in their shampoo for their baby. So it's just, it's interesting to track how these things can change so quickly. Um, What I think about a lot of the time, though, is that this research is also happening on the internet. And I think that the consumer can find absolutely whatever they want to find online to either change their opinion or reinforce their opinion. And it might change from day to day. So if I want to hear that the natural ingredient is safer, I can find that. If tomorrow I want to find that the synthetic ingredient is safer, I can find that. So... I think we're at a critical point in consumer product safety where perfection also might be getting in the way of progress. Mm. Um, Extreme views on both sides of the conversations want a definitive this or that answer where the reality is a little bit more complex than that. So my hope is that more brands and credentialed groups can start to elucidate some of these complex issues and importantly, bring the consumers along on the journey to see the massive progress that we've made. And, and sometimes that can get lost in the day-to-day messaging. I really appreciate the statement, you know, perfection getting in the way of progress. And, and also this idea that, um, you know, it's constantly changing. And the, and the way that we seek information has changed so drastically in the last, you know, couple of decades that, you know, in any given day, depending on what my search is, <laughs> I could get a completely different answer. Um, and I and I think not only does that maybe make it hard for the consumer to kind of decide what's safe for me, um, but it, I would think that that's probably hard for companies to decide. You know, what do we, you know, give? You know, what do we, you know, supply the consumer consumers with? And so, just out of you know, out of curiosity. 
have you seen changes in how retailers go about carrying different products, particularly the ability to carry safer uh, products in, 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 in their stores? Um, um, has, have, have there been real changes around that? Because again, this is a really complex web of you know, what the consumer's needs are, are what the, the kind of our health and our science say, but then also what we can bring to market. Yeah, definitely. And I think you hit the nail on the head that it, it doesn't just make it difficult for consumers, but for the brands who are making products, because you have to make a game time decision and, and you might be missing the full data set. And there's the entire value or supply chain, like you mentioned, retailers also play an important role here. And what I have seen is that many major retailers now have their own internal clean or green designations that they're using both in-store and, and on website. And typically there are these little badges that designate products that meet whatever the certification scheme is to allow a consumer to more easily make a safer or a more sustainable choice compared to the conventional options on the shelf. Um, so this change is something that most of us can see, right? You can walk down the aisles at, at Target and see that they have clean at Target, that they might be calling out a vegan product. But there are definitely changes that the consumer can't see that are happening as well. Um, so many, many retailers have rolled out company-wide banned or restricted lists, and they apply to all the brands that they carry. So while this is not a rule, I have generally noticed that smaller retailers and more purpose-driven big, bigger box retailers do frequently have an extensive restriction list. And they actually require that brands attest to the fact that they're not intentionally adding any of those ingredients before they'll sell whatever the product is in question. But this is in contrast to retailers that have rolled out shorter band lists and maybe a guidance document that a company can use as a North Star for formulating to potentially reduce some of these chemicals of potential concern in the next X number of years. Um, and, and while you can use that as a guidance for formulating, they're not prescriptive. It's not required that the brands who sell there do that. Um, and since these discrepancies in approach do tend to, to occur across price point lines, the next step I would like to see is retailers flipping these guidelines into an enforceable standard mm. because currently, right, it might be harder for somebody who's in a lower SES area to locate and purchase safer products. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you really hit the, the nail on the head as far as kind of there's, you know, brands that are really trying to do their best to make uh, products that are safer. Um, there's these challenges, there's these barriers um, in place that could make it hard for there to be kind of, you know, equitable distribution uh, and access to safer products. And part of me, I often hear this conversation, oh, it's about price. The, some, one of the barriers is really around um, cost. And I don't know that that's true. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think the barriers might be uh, for companies, you know, to, to produce safer products and for retailers to carry these safer products, you know? Um, and, and, you know, do you, or do you think there are strategies that we could, employ to kind of help um, get this, you know, um, out there, spread more equitably, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that one of one of the biggest barriers is is within the supply chain in supplier cost, right? If it, it's a bit of a chicken the egg situation where if a retailer wants to ban a low cost um, 
preservative, for example, they're going to potentially knock knock off shelf those products that are the most affordable because that was the cheap option for the company to manufacture with. But the opposite side of that is if the brand making that product cannot secure a low cost, safer preservative because there is not enough volume for the suppliers to sell it at that discounted cost, then we're not able to achieve that. We're not able to achieve that price point right now. So it's kind of a stalemate of, do you just ban the thing and then wait for some amount of time where you don't fill that price point um, in the market? And, or do you, or do you sit and wait and hope that the safer alternative comes along? But of course it's not sitting and waiting. There's things that we can do, but as the retailer, they tend not to, to have as much of a say, but One of the cool things that I have been participating in is the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, or GC3, through UMass Lowell, and they are connecting the value chain. So from the raw material suppliers, the brands, and the retailers to come together and have these conversations on innovating in green chemistry. So there are these opportunities, but they they are still pretty niche in that the larger companies aren't necessarily participating at scale yet. So I'd love to see these bigger companies who have a bigger splash, a lot more buying power, start participating in those innovative programs. What a phenomenal, um, you know, conference and in, in, in just, you know, the, the highlighting the point that you raised here about the importance of really understanding the systems that are involved mm-hmm. in being able to um, get safer products to consumers and recognizing the complexity that's involved. In it. And I, I really loved this point that you, you raised. And so, you know, out of curiosity, right now, I think we're still in a moment in time where safer products are still an exception. They're the exception to the rule. They're not the norm. And I'm wondering, um, what do you see is, is, is needed to really make that transition, particularly in the personal care product space for safer products becoming the norm and not the exception? Yeah, well, I'm hopeful that we are well on our way to kind of start making safer products the norm, um, but of course there's work to be done. So right now, raw material suppliers, brands, and retailers are responsible for their own self-regulation to get themselves there. However, I personally think that refreshing certain federal guidelines or regulations could help propel the industry's ability to work within a framework of green or safer chemistry. So the reality is that certain technologies with a human health or environmental concern are lower cost and they are easier to formulate with. So your average brand, you know, the only quantifiable repercussion that they might be able to find is, you know, of, to using these less desirable ingredients, that is, is perhaps the loss of sales that they have to an alternative or safer brand. So, you know, I think an important goal, though, of a federal program, um, not sure that it would be a regulation program, a guideline, would be finding opportunities for the reduced cost of the green chemistries so that they are just more often selected. So I'm definitely not a policy expert, um, and this would probably be another several hour long conversation, but I will say I think a successful program would standardize ingredient selection and finished good testing approach um, while controlling for disproportionate impacts on smaller companies. 
because one of the concerns that I do hear most in the industry is that if a program, for example, has a financial repercussion, it can unintentionally favor larger corporations that could simply just choose to pay a penalty while a smaller company might not be able to compete with that. Yeah, great. That's a great point. It's particularly in a space where we're trying to be innovators, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it, yeah, that's a great point. You yeah. were going to say more and I'm, I'm sorry to. Have yes. Um, well, I, I have, a, I had a realization that I think really elucidated a need for a standardized guideline. And that was when I was comparing the certifying bodies that, that I work for or, or work with. And I, I really appreciate the work that they do and they have same or very, very similar goals, right? But they end up having different opinions on what makes a product safer, safer. So it's unrealistic to expect that safe products can be consistently produced in the face of inconsistent conclusions and information. But the truth is that without a standardized federal approach to safer products, either enforceable or not, I think it'll be hard to achieve or even simply gauge success at scale. And, you know, without that, that benchmark, who's to say when we've, we've crossed the finish line. You're raising, I think a really great point. And I do, you know, sometimes I hear the feedback. So I'm neither, you know, I'm also not a a policy expert in any way. Um, But one of the things that I sometimes hear is you know, at the, so maybe not the federal level, but at the state level, there's certain states that are really leading the charge. And mm-hmm. you're seated in one, you know, California has <laughs> done, a, you know, an amazing job really leading the charge and trying to, um, you know, champion and advocate for consumer product safety. And so I, I do wonder as a part of, you know, the, 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 the point you raise here around, you know, just being able to um, kind of have a better handle on what, is allowed into our consumer products and particularly personal care products. Um, you know, California's disclosure uh, policies around, you know, labeling ingredients and, and, and things like this, which really does do a phenomenal job of helping consumers, you know, just to highlight that I think even at the state or local levels, it, it's helpful um, for, for folks who might be, you know, interested in like, well, how might things more you know, closer to home uh, mm-hmm. impact um, yeah. health? And speaking of closer to closer to home, I'm just I'm, out of curiosity, what are some of the ingredients that the honest company kind of vouches to avoid? And, and why is that? So honest has an extensive banned and restricted substances list, and we call it our no list. And it really outlines the ingredients that we have chosen not to use given a high inherent hazard. So these are ingredients that are essentially not worth the risk, so to speak, because that health endpoint that may be associated with the ingredient is either of, of high hazards like a cancer risk or known endocrine disruption, or there's strong evidence of a growing problem like growing sensitization in populations over time, or simply that there are just too many data gaps. You know, in the case of significant data gaps or perhaps an unknown contamination profile of an ingredient, we do opt for the precautionary principle. And that's where the ingredient is assumed high risk um, unless we have data or until we have data to suggest otherwise. And this high risk tier on the no list um, includes ingredients like phthalates, parabens, formaldehyde doning ingredients, cyclic silicones, benzalkonium chloride, and much, much more. 
But this living list evolves as new science emerges. And we, we do take a look at new primary research, review articles, and governmental or NGO guidance as it's published. Something I've noticed since we are consistently innovating new products and therefore qualifying new active ingredients internally is that some of these fad ingredients that take the cosmetic market by storm are really under-researched with regard to safety. And they actually do typically end up on our no list, which is a really tough marketing call to make, you know, for the company since we can't offer our answer to that new magic serum that all of our competitors are selling. But at the end of the day, it, it's the right decision for us. And our consumers trust that we are confident in the ingredients we use. So sticking to, to our framework of the honest standard really helps keep us honest, pun intended, when there are those larger data gaps. So much of the need to create safer products sits at this kind of nexus of, you know, kind of the science of what we know. And then the need to kind of, you know, move beyond and, and, and develop uh, new techniques, new tools, but not just in the actual space of, you know, um, just thinking about the, the new products that might come to market. But like, as we talked about earlier, kind of the overall systems uh, that are at play. I'm just curious, you know, what other types of, you know, product safety issues is your team taking on? Um, um, you know, as far as kind of, you know, being the, the, the trailblazers, innovation leaders, um, you know, that you are at the Honest Company. Yeah. Well, in the U.S., the FDA doesn't have the authority to require manufacturers to participate in any pre-market approval of cosmetics or personal care products. And, you know, everybody talks about how the FDA has only banned or, or cites bans for 11 ingredients or ingredient classes. There is some exciting news in the space of federal cosmetics regulations. Recently, the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act of 2022, or MOCRA, was passed. And it's the first major update to cosmetic and personal care product regulations in the United States in over 80 years. The updates include several new provisions like record keeping and reporting of serious events to the Food and Drug Administration or FDA due to use of a product, as well as labeling on the package regarding how to report such adverse events. The FDA will also have increased authority to recall products on the market if they're adulterated, meaning that they contain a substance that may harm human health. Now, these are only a few of the updates required within MOCRA, and while this is a step in the right direction, additional work still needs to be done to better define what safety means when talking about personal care products and to increase transparency with regards to information for consumers. And that's typically contrasted with the policies in the EU, and over 2,000 high-risk ingredients have been banned for use in cosmetics. And honestly, we we more closely align to that philosophy in the EU when it comes to product safety. So let's start with ingredient restrictions. Um, a restriction list can be key for avoiding those high hazard ingredients that are simply not worth the risk. Our no list is a filter through which we remove those high risk ingredients from our ingredient library, allowing us to formulate in this inherently lower risk situation right off the bat. So, it also allows us to incorporate those risks outside of human health. But the second process that we borrow from the EU is completing a toxicological risk assessment on finished goods. And the work is done to effectively assess if the exposure poses a health risk and therefore remediation is needed. 
And by doing so, you can conclude if the consumer's exposure is expected to be associated with adverse effects. Well, you can also include those a proper include proper adjustment factors to protect for your most vulnerable and susceptible users, such as babies or pregnant women. And I feel strongly that that level of confidence and product safety cannot be achieved by a restriction list alone, which is the most common approach that I see in the, the safer product industry in the US. So I do hope to see other companies start to adopt the two-pronged approach in an effort to address both high hazard ingredients and high risk use scenarios. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, very impressive because there's, you know, many, um, many out there are unaware that these processes exist, mm-hmm. A, and B, that they're actually being employed by some companies to like really uh, do due di- diligence to make sure that products are available that are safer for consumers. So I want to just, you know, see if there's any other points you wanted to make sure to share with us before we, you know, have to part for the day. So I think that one of the things that I'm most excited about, and and I think it makes me very hopeful for the future, is I'm seeing a lot more democratization of data um, in the industry. And And I really can't wait to see how that will affect product safety. So the paradigm is shifting from a place of protecting product development IP to sharing information within the industry to help achieve shared goals. And there are some platforms that exist that connect several manufacturers um, and they can come together to fill toxicological gaps or other safety gaps. And these platforms and softwares are, are new to the market within the five years of Bennett Honest. So it's, it is kind of like watching the industry change before my eyes. Well. These platforms are voluntary right now. Who knows what their legacy will be? There are efforts being made right now at the federal level that would require suppliers to share information on all intentionally added ingredients, impurities, toxicological data to their downstream partners that use them in formulation. Um, So that, for example, is the Cosmetic Supply Chain Transparency Act of 2021 um, that's currently in the House. I do hope to see this collaborative process um, of identifying safer alternatives um, help to continue that inching towards a feasible national scale product safety guideline. I I love that. And what I really love is like a powerful take home message is that we really do all have a part in this, right? Um, And so companies, retailers, um, consumers, we all have a, a, a way to help in making our products safer. And I really want to thank you for taking the time out today to meet with us and um, to really highlight the importance of, you know, the innovative work that um, some companies are doing. Um, special thanks to The Honest Company for um, all the hard work and for you being willing to, to join us today. Um, Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Always excited to talk about safer products. An important part of this work is acknowledging and being able to talk openly about the limits and uncertainties in the data. However, in the case of personal care products, even in the face of uncertainty, there's still enough information about the potential health effects from ingredients of concern to act. By taking on a precautionary approach, we can protect more people, including the most vulnerable folks in the population, by not including such ingredients 
with unknown health impacts in our products. The beauty industry really is an important partner in pushing for beauty justice. With manufacturers, businesses, and retailers involved, there are many points along the supply chain where more just practices can be implemented. And with beauty brands like The Honest Company being leaders and committing to prioritize consumer health in addition to product effectiveness, as well as strategic business partnerships helping beauty brands of all sizes get the information that they need to make better chemical choices, a more safe and equitable future of beauty for everyone, especially folks of color, is within sight. In the next few episodes, we'll be shifting our focus to the intersection between science and advocacy, starting with Dr. Dere Tete, Assistant Professor at Chapman University. Thanks so much for joining us once again for another episode of Beauty Plus Justice. Help us get more folks listening to the podcast. Make sure to tell a friend and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Be well, listeners, and talk to you again soon. This episode was produced and edited by Marissa Chan, Lisa Johnson, and Felicia Haycoop, with assistance from Elkania Chaudhry-Polino. We received funding from the Environmental Defense Fund.